You're listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. You realize that Christmas time we celebrate the first coming of God the Son in human form. And in celebrating his first advent, we look to his second coming. I don't know how you're doing this morning as you come into this service. I'm not sure how your heart is. I'm not sure how your body is. I know I, I don't feel very well this morning. I'm just acknowledging that in front of you, trusting the Lord to sustain. And I trust I'm not the only one who may be distracted by something this morning. And so our, our hope, friends, must be found outside of anything in this life. And the good news of the gospel is that God has promised peace and joy and rest forever because that's always been his plan and he will do it and accomplish it through what Jesus Christ came and did. And as we look toward his second coming, we look forward to our eternal rest with our God who loves us. So that's why we're here today. And I hope that as we consider a familiar text to many of us, that hope and peace will be the result of our time this morning. I was speaking at a conference in the last couple of years, and one of the speakers at the conference made a comment that his aim in preaching was not to help his people better understand their Bibles, but rather to preach the specific text in front of him. Now, that comment was met with a lot of pushback, even from the other speakers, and we had some good conversations about that together. What this brother was meaning to convey and meaning to get across is that sometimes a preacher can go to other passages of Scripture too much in a sermon in a way that actually distracts from the text that he is aiming to preach. That is certainly possible, and it's not something that we should do. That said, there are so many verses and passages in the Bible that cannot be properly preached or understood without going to other passages or maybe can't be rightly preached or understood without going to other passages and primarily dwelling on those passages to help us understand the one that we are looking at. For example, in Acts chapter 8, you might remember the story of the Ethiopian eunuch riding in a chariot. He had gone to worship in Jerusalem, and he is reading from the prophet Isaiah, as he rides along. And you remember Philip was prompted by the Lord to approach the chariot. Listen to these words from Acts 8. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I? unless someone guides me. Now, there's a word for the usefulness of preaching. But then he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. 
Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So notice that, that Philip begins with Isaiah 53, because that's what the eunuch is reading. And in order to explain Isaiah 53 to the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip appealed to many other passages of biblical revelation and appealed more broadly to the truth of God pertaining to the Christ so that this Ethiopian eunuch could understand the words of Isaiah 53. Our text today is just like that. The reason I bring this up, as we look this morning at a portion of Luke chapter 1, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open them to Luke 1.26. We're going to be looking today at verses 26 through 33 of Luke 1, and the main thrust of our passage and of today's sermon will really be verses 31 to 33. And if we are going to rightly understand these verses, we will appeal to many other passages in the Scripture. We will appeal to the witness of the prophets and the witness of Moses in order to rightly understand what Luke wrote. So let's look now to Luke 1, 26 through 33. Listen as I read. This is the word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Amen. We thank the Lord for his word today and every day. So my hope in this sermon is to help us see the significance of verses 31 to 33, very simply. And I hope to help these verses hit us the way that they should. Because let's be honest, when we read Luke 1 and 2, or we read the birth narrative in Matthew's gospel, Verses like these often do not register with us the way that they should. We're familiar with them, many of us. We drive right by. We just kind of bump over them and keep going. They're just a part of the story of Jesus' birth. They're a part of this Christian version of Twas the Night Before Christmas. You know, the thing that we read around the fireplace on Christmas Eve about the birth of the Savior. 
in order for these words to hit us the way that they should, and in order to exposit this passage appropriately, we are going to look to the Old Testament. We're going to look to what God had revealed through Moses and the prophets. There's no other way to understand this text. My encouragement to you, to us, as you listen, is to see how Jesus has always been the plan of God to save you and me. Make this personal. The plan of God from before time to save you, we will see in how God has ordained and planned for Jesus to come. As you consider these things, marvel at the plan. Marvel at the wisdom of God. Marvel at the Savior. Marvel at the love of God for us in it all. Allow yourself to be swept up into this great story that God is telling, into this great plan that God is accomplishing. See yourself in it. As we consider covenants that God made with various people through history, people that you know from the flannel board in Sunday school when you were a kid. See yourself as a part of this great plan. And see anew, or maybe for the first time, see that Jesus is your only hope and that you do not need another one. If you sit here today and you are a Christian, may you be reminded anew of how sufficient and mighty your Savior is and how the plan of God was always for him to do everything necessary to save you. And if you're sitting here today and you have not trusted Christ, may today be the day that you see your need of a righteousness that you do not have, May you see the depth of your sin and how there was always a plan for Jesus to represent sinners, even you. And that by faith, you can be found in him. Not having a righteousness of your own, but being covered in his blood and his righteousness. And thereby, you will know everlasting peace. What could be better at Christmas time or any other time? than to know Christ. So listen that way. My plan is to offer three points and a conclusion. Three points and a conclusion. Point one, I've got in my notes setting it up. I just want to set the table for us to understand Luke 1, 26 to 33. In order for these verses to hit us, for us to grasp the significance of these words in particular, These words that this son of Mary will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And he's going to have a kingdom for us to rightly understand these things. We need to understand something of the biblical covenants, especially the one that God made with David. So let's set it up. You know, many of you know, if you're familiar with the witness of the scriptures, that God has always existed. He never got started. God is. 
And before time and space were a thing, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit planned to save a people. God determined that he would have a people for himself forever and that that people would be saved by the work that God the Son would uniquely accomplish. Then God made the world. He spoke it into existence and he made man uniquely in his image. And he made a covenant with Adam. Adam, we know, was the representative of the entire human race. Adam was given a law to keep and he was given a prohibition not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Had Adam obeyed and kept the covenant, we know that he would have earned eternal life for himself and all of us. But should he break the covenant, he would plunge us into death and ruin. And we know from the biblical witness that that is what's happened. But immediately upon Adam's fall and our fall with him, God promised another covenant, a covenant of grace. He promised a savior. He promised the gospel. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God said that he would send a redeemer from the seed of the woman who would bruise the serpent's head, who would rescue God's people from sin, from the grave, and from the evil one. That covenant of grace that's promised in Genesis 3.15 is further revealed throughout the Old Testament. It's revealed through covenants that God makes with Abraham and Moses and David. And it is established and accomplished through Christ in the new covenant. For our purposes today, as we think about Abraham, two things that I want us to have in our minds. The first thing that's going on with Abraham when God makes a covenant with him, he makes a covenant with Abraham and his physical children. Abraham would have numerous descendants. They would have a land. There would be kings that would come from Abraham. And all of these promises God kept. They were fulfilled in Israel under the old covenant. The second thing going on with Abraham, though, are the eternal promises made to him and his spiritual children. These pertain to Jesus. They entail the forgiveness of sins and righteousness and eternal life, and they are fulfilled through Christ in the new covenant. But then God made a covenant with Moses, well, with the people through Moses, to be more precise. In this covenant, God gave it to rule the kingdom of Israel. He did this through giving Israel laws. He gave them his moral law, what he requires for righteousness, his immutable standard, summarized in the 10 words written on two tablets of stone, the 10 commandments. And then he also gave ceremonial and civil laws to Israel through Moses. This Mosaic covenant served to govern the people It served to make clear the blessings and the curses for the kingdom of Israel. And it served to point to something other and greater that was coming. In this covenant, there were blessings for obedience to the law. There were curses for disobedience. In this covenant, it was plain that without righteousness, there is no blessing. Without righteousness, there's no peace and there's no prosperity in the land that God gave. The sacrificial system was instituted in the covenant that God made through Moses that taught the people that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The priesthood was established through this Mosaic covenant, as well as the Day of Atonement once a year. This taught the people 
the need for a mediator, someone to stand between them and God. This taught the people that they needed a high priest in particular to act on their behalf to make atonement for sins and to take them away. Which brings us to the covenant God made with David. So this is point two, the Davidic covenant. Track with me here. I don't know how much you've thought about the covenant God made with David and its significance this time of year. I hope it pops for you in a new way this morning. Because when it does, it's remarkable. A little bit of context for the Davidic covenant, the covenant God made with David. In Genesis chapter 17, the Lord said to Abraham and Sarah, and in Genesis 35, God said to Jacob that kings would come from them. This is narrowed down in Genesis chapter 49. This is when Jacob, whose name is now Israel, blesses his sons. The scope of this kingdom is narrowed down to the tribe of Judah. Fast forward now to the people of Israel in the land of Canaan during the time of the Judges. If you've read the book of Judges, you know during that era of Israel's history, there is a lot of disobedience. Judges chapter 2, verses 20 and 21 read this way. Because of all the disobedience in the land, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. In other words, the people of Israel have broken the Mosaic Covenant. And because of that, they will not enjoy the blessings that God promised to Abraham, peace in the land. The people will enjoy the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant if they keep the Mosaic law. It's a big deal. You know the cycle of the book of Judges. This is on loop throughout. A tribe of the people of Israel rebels. Then God sends a deliverer, a judge, and there is restoration. And this happens multiple times over. The refrain in the book of Judges, you remember it. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes, right? In those days, there was no king in Israel. So here's the state of things. Israel, in the land, in the time of the Judges, they are inhabiting the land promised to Abraham. Understand that. Canaan is the promised land, and they're living in it. Yet they have disobeyed the law of Moses, and the whole thing is now precarious. There is no king. There is no lasting obedience. So what do the people need? What do they need? They need a representative. Someone who could keep the law for the sake of the people and thereby bring blessing and deliverance to the children of Abraham. It's what they need. 
Now, the people of Israel, they would demand a king for themselves. You remember this in 1 Samuel 8. They want a king like the nations have. That's not good. They want a king like the other nations have. And God tells Samuel to give the people what they want. And you remember that Saul becomes the first king of Israel. Now, Saul is very impressive at a human level. I mean, he's really tall, handsome, put together, great in battle, very impressive. It is of note that he is not of the tribe of Judah. He will prove to not be a man who is zealous for the Lord, but rather is zealous for himself. Now, there were some successes to Saul's reign, but in the end, his kingship would fail. And it's also of note that he was very jealous of a man named David, who was the Lord's anointed king. Lastly, and just kind of giving us some context for the Davidic covenant, in the writings of Moses onward, there is an ultimate goal depicted for the kingdom of God. What is that goal? That they would live, the people, the ultimate goal for the people is that they would live in a land that the Lord would give them. That the Lord would establish his dwelling place uniquely with them there. That they would have rest from their enemies and that the blessing and the presence of the Lord would be with and upon them forever. That's the goal for the people of God. All of that sets the stage for the covenant God makes with David. We read of that covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We read it this morning. That's where the covenant is made. Via the prophet Nathan, the Lord speaks to David. God makes a couple of things very plain. He makes it plain that he himself is going to be the one to establish David's throne and that he will be with the Davidic king. Just listen to these words from 2 Samuel 7. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. He shall build a house for my name, the king will, your son, David, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, says the Lord. My steadfast love will not depart from him, God said. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And then there's the language of Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. You have said, writes the psalmist, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. The Lord is going to establish David's throne and he will be with this Davidic king. But that's not all the Lord said he would do. He said that he would give God's people rest and security. Rest and security. Again, hear these words from 2 Samuel 7. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. I will give you rest 
from all your enemies. This is what God said. It is the Davidic king who would be the nation's protector. And the Psalms are full of language regarding God's anointed conquering and subduing his enemies and the enemies of God's people. Now, let's talk about the Davidic king for a minute. Continue to track with me. What was the role of the Davidic king in Israel? What was his role? What was he to do? Important questions. Solomon's dedication of the temple found in 1 Kings chapter 8. Read that chapter sometime. It is perhaps the high point of the entire Old Testament. Solomon's dedication of the temple. Consider it. The people are in their own land. They have an anointed king. They've conquered their enemies. And God's temple is there. This is a high water mark of the entire Old Testament. Things are really good, yet. In the covenant God made with David, there were conditions and commandments and responsibilities for David and his sons. What were these responsibilities? What was David to do? What were David's sons to do? Three major headers here. First, the Davidic kings were to guard the right worship of the Lord. They were to guard the temple and the right worship of God. If you read Kings and Chronicles, do this sometime. And just make note how throughout 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, notice how the primary test of a king's faithfulness pertained to the corporate worship of the nation under his rule. All the language about idols and high places and all of these things just replete in Kings and Chronicles. The Davidic king was to guard right worship and see that the people worship the Lord rightly. Secondly, the Davidic king was to keep the Mosaic law. He was to keep God's law. Psalm 132, 11 and 12 writes this, or reads this way. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. If the Davidic king keeps the Mosaic law, he'll sit on the throne. That's a condition. That's important. Thirdly, the Davidic king would represent the people. He would be the representative of the nation. The Davidic king, through the Davidic covenant, would represent the people under the law. If he's righteous, the people are blessed. If he's wicked, the people will suffer. Again, Kings and Chronicles bear this out. So absolutely massive for our understanding is this. In the Davidic covenant, the Lord dwelling with the nation will occur on account of the king. And the curses of the Mosaic Covenant are directed at the nation through the king. If God's going to dwell with the people, it will be because of the king. If God's going to cut the people off, it will be also on account of the king. 1 Kings 6 and 9. Just listen to these words. This is the word of the Lord to Solomon, David's son. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules 
and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will not forsake my people Israel. Solomon, if you are obedient, if you are righteous, I will dwell with Israel, and I won't forsake them. 1 Kings 9. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I've given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. If you keep my law, I'll dwell with Israel. If you don't, and you worship other gods, I will cut off Israel. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. This is a big, big thing in Scripture, covenant representation. Adam represented all of the human race. The Davidic king represents the nation in a unique way. Pulling this together, the Abrahamic covenant established a people in a land. The Mosaic covenant gives the law that these people are to obey if they are to enjoy the blessings of Abraham. And the Davidic covenant focuses the kingdom of Israel into one person, the Davidic king, who is to obey God's law, who is to protect right worship, and who will represent the people. Now, in light of that, consider what the prophets wrote. This is point three. In light of everything that we've just considered, let these words from the prophets wash over you. May they grip our hearts and minds and thrill us as we consider God's plan. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. All of these words that I'm going to read are well after David is gone. So just consider the wisdom and the plan of God. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. 
A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Do you notice how over and over the language of the prophets about the coming Savior is language about a king and a servant? But you hear the language of a king, how he will come and execute justice and righteousness. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Only two or three more, but listen to these. These are from Jeremiah and from Ezekiel. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days... Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. In other words, this son of David, this righteous branch that God would raise up, is the fulfillment of everything that God promised through the Davidic kings and is the fulfillment of everything God promised and was teaching through the institution of the priesthood in this one man. Listen to the language of Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out and I will rescue my flock. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be 
their God, and they shall be my people. Now, after the prophet stopped speaking, 400 years of silence. It's a long time. And then in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. For you have found favor with God. And behold, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The long-awaited one is here. All of the testimony of Moses and the prophets and all the centuries that have gone by, the long-awaited one is here. The long-awaited king, the son of David, who would keep the law, who would execute justice and righteousness in the land, who would represent the people, who would make sure that they would dwell securely in the land that God had given his people forever, he's come. See those things in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 33. As we conclude our time, let's just think together for a moment. Just me speaking with you as your pastor, but as your brother in Christ. We say these things often, but I hope today is yet another illustration of this reality, that the Bible really is about Jesus. The Bible is about the Christ. We've surveyed the law and the prophets and the covenants this morning. Who's it about? It's about him. It's about what he did for us, about who he is for us. So we ask, is, is Jesus really the greatest, final, and definitive revelation of God? Is he? Is he really the fulfillment of everything that God had promised? That's a big statement. Everything, brother? Is he really the fulfillment of it all? Brother, the Bible is a, it's a big book a lot in here. Certainly that's true. And there are many things that we could say to that. But if we had to reduce it down and say, what is the point of this book? Is Jesus really that? Is he really the point of the whole book? You're daggum right he is. He is. The imperative of all of Scripture is what? The Definite article imperative of all of Scripture is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think John 6, 29, when Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience, and they ask him, what do we need to be doing to, in order to be doing the works of God? What does he say? He says, this is the work of God, that you would believe in the one whom he sent. 
May we believe in him this morning. Trust him. Accept him. Rest in him. For what? For the forgiveness of sins. Because you've sinned a bunch, so have I. Corruption runs deep. I crave things and want things, feel things that are wicked, so do you. Trust him. Turn from that sin. What good did it ever do for you? Wreck your life. Turn from that. Cast yourself upon the Savior for the forgiveness of your sins. Trust him. Accept him. Rest in him for righteousness. We talked about it. Without righteousness, there's no peace in the land. Without righteousness, we won't dwell with the Lord. You don't have any righteousness, nor do I. Because to be righteous is to be a law keeper at the spiritual level. Trust Christ for that today. Trust him and rest in him. Believe in him for eternal life. Every one of us is perishing. Was out the other night. Michelle and I went out with my parents and we had a wonderful time together. We had a picture taken of us at the restaurant. And I'm just looking at a picture. I'm like, man, I'm, I look different than I did 10 years ago. I am grayer. I mean, I, you always think that you're going to be the exception to the rule. Do you not? It's like, yeah, you watch everybody else around you age. You watch everybody else around you get sick and these kinds of things. But you think, you delude yourself into thinking that you'll be able to kind of stave that off for longer than most till it happens to you. And you look in the mirror one day and you're like, I'm going the way of all the earth. I don't say that. I mean, it's, it is lighthearted in one sense, but this is the greatest and last enemy, is it not? Death. Harrowing thought. You may be sitting here this morning grieved and heartbroken over the fact that someone you love dearly isn't with you this holiday season. What hope do we have? The fact that Christ is the resurrection and the life. And that he got up from the grave, triumphing over death. He conquered the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, so that we don't have to live enslaved to the fear of death anymore. And that we know that our Redeemer lives, and that he will again stand on the earth, and that we will one day see him, not with any other, but with our very own eyes. Believe in him for that. Trust in him. When you're faced with your own death or the death of someone you love dearly, it forces you to ask some difficult questions, some serious ones. What do I think of all this? Is there hope beyond the grave? And most pointedly, is Jesus who he says he is? And did he do what he said he did? And will he do what he said he would do? Answer those questions. It's good for our faith that we would contemplate the fact that we're perishing. Trust Christ for resurrection and eternal life today. The primary application of any passage of Scripture is to do that. I'm thinking of John's Gospel, right? Chapter 20 and verse 31. So many things could have been written. The books of the world couldn't contain everything that Jesus did. But these particular things are written for what reason? So that you might believe that he is the son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's the point of the book. That's the primary application of any passage of the book is 
dear friend. Maybe you're not trusting Christ today. Or, believer, you've been trusting him for decades. Either way, turn from yourself, from your sin and your own notions of your own merit. Renounce your vice, yes, renounce your virtue also, and trust Christ alone. That's the primary call of any passage of Scripture. He is the long-awaited one, the promised one, the all-sufficient Savior. Everything that we've considered today from the covenants makes this clear. Adam represented us all in the beginning, and he failed, just like we would have. God promised everything that Adam had ruined through his failure. God said, I'm going to redeem you through the one that I'll send. And then he makes it very plain through the covenants that he makes that this one, this promised seed of the woman, would come to be a representative of God's people and that everything that God could require, he would accomplish on behalf of his people. Because the people can't do it. He alone could do it. And he did it. In every way that Adam failed, he succeeded. In every way that David failed, he succeeded. He is the better Adam. He is the better David. And he did far more than die for our sins. Sometimes you hear the gospel is Jesus died for your sins. We understand. That's, I mean, shorthand, that's fine to say. But don't, don't say that only. Friends. Saints of CBC, when we talk about what the good news is and the work of Christ, don't only say he died for your sins, because that's to cut his work in half at best. Because he came and he lived a life of perfect righteousness for us. And then he conquered the evil one for us and conquered death for us. He ascended and intercedes for us and he's coming back for us. That's gospel. He's done it all. It isn't one of these things either where, you know, we're drowning in the body of water and God throws us the life preserver and says, grab it, right? That ain't, that ain't the presentation of salvation in the scriptures. We're dead. We're drowned at the bottom of the ocean. And the arm of God that isn't short to save, by the way, reaches down and rescues us, unites us to Christ in faith because the Lord is the Savior. And here's the thing, in all this talk about Jesus being a representative and how sufficient he is as a representative. In every way that Adam failed, he succeeded. In every way that David failed, he succeeded. All of that. He is the greatest representative in the history of the world. He is all sufficient. If you're in him, you're good. Beloved, if you trust him, he is your representative. When the Lord looks at you, he looks at you in Christ. He's not just a representative, he is your representative by faith. Think in those terms. And all of this greatly pleases the Father. And if you thought about that, it brings the Father glory, amen, and it brings him joy. We have many misconceptions, do we not, about the way that God feels about us. 
Sometimes if you listen to people talk, we want to uphold God's justice and salvation, which is appropriate, right? That Christ became a human being in order to die, right? To pay the penalty of the law that the law requires, right? To endure the curse of the law, to bear God's wrath. All of that is absolutely true because God is just. And even in saving sinners, he will do so in a way that's just. But sometimes the way that's talked about, it's almost like God the Father is holy and wrathful and reluctantly saves us only because of Christ. Like Christ had to convince him to save us. It's not at all how the scriptures present it. Everything that we have been considering today says otherwise. That God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all have been working in perfect unity for the redemption of a people from before time. All three persons. There is rejoicing in heaven. That means the Father and the Spirit. You realize this. There is rejoicing in heaven. Every time a sheep is laid on Christ's shoulder and brought safely home. Every time. We were chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world, not because we were something, but in order that we might be something. What is that? Holy and blameless in Christ and presented that way before the throne of God. What does Jude say? With great joy. These well-known words from number six, Aaron's benediction, you know them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Beloved, he has. You realize that? He has. The Lord smiles on us. He loves us. In the Lord Jesus, he has given us peace. If you're anything like me, as you sit here this morning, maybe you're, maybe you're longing for peace. There's something in here, in your kind of tender, sane moments in a fallen world that just kind of gnaws at you. You're longing for peace. And I don't just mean peace for today. I mean lasting peace. You longing for that? Can you conceive of what everlasting rest would look like? Everlasting joy? Where you no longer have to fight for joy, but joy is just your experience. It's your resting heart rate. Can you conceive of that? But you long for it, don't you? We all do. Forgive me for doing this. This is, I shouldn't say it like that. I'm a human being. And in, in my household, we're reading C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia together. So this is me talking with you. I'm going to read a paragraph to you that, that grips my soul in thinking about the peace and the hope that awaits us. This is the final paragraph of the last book called The Last Battle. If this is a spoiler for any family in the congregation, I apologize. But this is like the consummation of life in Aslan's country. Aslan is the Christ figure. Think about your longing for eternity and listen to these words. The lion is speaking to the human beings. All is going to be finally well, right? The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. 
But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. The peace that awaits us is better than we can imagine. And it's greater than every longing of our hearts. A few final words from the prophet Isaiah. Right after he had written of Jesus, that righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins, these words come. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Beloved, we belong to that root of Jesse. We are a part of his kingdom. And we will dwell with him in his glorious place of rest. May your soul be encouraged this Christmas as you think of him. Let's pray.